Hello there, and thanks for tuning in to this Raising the Roof podcast. I'm Nick Atkin, Chief Exec here at Yorkshire Housing, and you're listening to the show that brings together business leaders as well as industry experts, and together we unpick the hot topics in housing and beyond. So today, in episode seven of season two, yes, how have we managed to get there? We're focusing on all things green how we green our homes, green skills of the future, and the green tech supply chain. In other words, the role that housing has to play in tackling the climate crisis. When you think about it, hardly a week goes by without a report being published somewhere across the world that's sending out a very clear message that we need to reduce our carbon emissions if we're going to avoid irreversible damage to our climate and the the planet we all call home. One of the startling facts that I I recently stumbled across brought into sharp focus how significant the role is that housing has to play in the decarbonisation of of both our economy and our lifestyle. The homes across the UK produce more carbon emissions each year than the cars that are on our roads. And yet the focus has been on reducing car usage and, and the shift to EVs rather than actually looking at how we can reduce the carbon footprint of our homes. So now that's hopefully got your attention, let me introduce you to our two guests to take us through the journey to net zero. Now, these two people probably have the best kept hairstyles in the housing sector. And as somebody with no hair at all, I've got very little room to talk, but they are the best Quaffered guests that we've had on, I think. First up is someone who I hugely admire and have been keen to get on Raising the Roof from the very beginning, and that's Kate Henderson. Kate is the Chief Exec of the National Housing Federation, which is the trade body and the voice of housing associations across England. And I know from various meetings that I've been in with Kate just how passionate she is about tackling the housing crisis, inequality but also climate change. And that's why she's a perfect fit for this podcast. Prior to her joining the National Housing Federation back in 2018 now, Kate was chief exec of the Town and Country Planning Association. But we won't hold that against you, Kate. We promise not to. She's a very busy person. She's a member of several government panels, including the Net Zero Building Council, the Rough Sleeping Advisory Panel, and the Social Housing White Paper Expert Challenge panel. And clearly she loves any panel that's got a long title as well. So you're a very busy person, Kate. And it's really clear from your Twitter feed that you've spent pretty much the last year visiting housing associations up and down the country, particularly those who are retrofitting homes, meeting the teams that that are doing the work and speaking to residents about some of the positive benefits of the energy efficiency measures that are being carried out in their homes. So that's all the sort of worky stuff, but you know how we like to do a bit of digging on this podcast. So there's a couple of things about Kate that you won't necessarily find in her LinkedIn profile or her biog, and I have to say that she's looking very worried at this point. Well, Kate is a co-author of not one, not two even, but three books, including The Art of Building a Garden City, Designing New Communities for the 21st Century which was published in 2017 and won the 2018 National Urban Design Book Award. So a award-winning author. And on top of that, she studied uh, geology. Now, I also studied geology, but not at university. I did it at A-level. It was rock hard. Sorry, first and last joke. But you studied geology at at university, Kate, and, and I believe that that stayed with you. So 
you now love visiting volcanoes on holiday and you've seen half a dozen volcanoes around the world so far. So I'm sure the rest of the family love it when they say, let's go to the beach. And you say, no, let's climb up this volcano instead. And, and look, it's, it's just about to erupt as well. What better holiday break could that be? So that's Kate. So to my next guest, I'm delighted to be joined by somebody who's done more conference speaking slots than even yourself, Kate. And that's our very own Steve Ellard. Steve is the Director of Assets and Sustainability here at, at Yorkshire Housing. He's Yorkshire born and bred. He grew up and still lives in the coastal resort of Scarbados. He heads up Yorkshire Housing's approach to investment in our existing homes. He also oversees our retrofit programme and has a big focus on energy efficiency. And also because he didn't have enough to do, we also asked him to lead on our response to damp and mould. So a few years ago now, he was the 24 Housing and National Housing Federation's Young Leader of the Year, which he won back in 2016, which he always claims was a vintage year. I'm not so sure they actually run the award anymore, Steve, so I'm not sure what that, that actually says. But I suppose you're really interested in what he normally doesn't tell you. Well, he's a former golfing protégé who once represented Yorkshire at golf, but his family life has taken over. So he's now swapped golf for taking his two girls to ballet and dancing. And so the only walking of the golf course he now does is, is with his dog alongside. Any free time he has, he's spent desperately trying to get better at his latest obsession, which is road cycling. Yes, he's not yet quite old enough to be a mammal. And you can Google that if you don't know what that is. He will be one at some point. He did try mountain biking, but he fell off and broke a rib just a week before joining Yorkshire Housing. So stay on the road. Uh, Steve whatever you do so there's our guests let's get cracking and start talking about how we save our planet so let's kick things off Kate can I come to you first what from your perspective are the, are the main challenges that the housing sector is facing when it comes to the whole issue of retrofitting homes yeah I mean firstly great to, to be here and to be talking about a topic that is hugely close to my heart but also I think so key to our sector, what we're here to do, which is to make sure the residents of social housing have good quality homes that they can afford to live in. And that means being able to afford to heat them as well. So it's really timely to have this conversation. Challenges, there are quite a few, but they are ones we can overcome with the right support in place. We did a survey of our members, I think, back in 2020. And the top issue in terms of barriers and challenges to retrofit was funding. We, as a sector, own and manage 2.7 million homes, providing homes to 6 million people. So that is a big scale of retrofit. It's a really big opportunity too, though, because within the housing association sector, we've pretty much got every housing type and we are in every part of the country. So again, we can think not just about the individual home, but about the block, the street, the wider community. We can work out which technologies work best with different housing types and the like. But that biggest challenge is definitely funding. And it's the scale of funding that we need to be able to deliver that big change, that retrofit over the next couple of decades of, of two and a half million homes. We have social housing decarbonisation funds, which is great. We've just had wave two out of the door, which almost £800 million worth of additional funding. Really important, really exciting. But what we need now is the commitment of the remainder of the social housing decarbonisation fund. So it was a £3.8 billion manifesto pledge. And we have definitely seen the first 
billion of it. But if we could get the rest of that funding up to 2030, we then start overcoming some of these other challenges. So there's a funding gap challenge and there's lots of other pressures on the sector too, safety being a huge one, but also supply, quality, many things. But if we had longer term funding, you also get kind of the confidence of skills and supply chain and all of that stuff that I think we'll probably touch on. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to skills and supply chains. I think that's a biggie. So I suppose what, what you're looking for then is that is that long-term certainty, so that commitment to the remaining 2.8 billion and to enable some of those longer-term plans to take place. Is that a fair, fair summary? It is. I mean, I think you know, it's, it's not to say that the, the wave two, which is almost 800 million pounds, isn't hugely welcome. It is, and it's welcome that that's over a couple of years. Yeah. But to really get the pace of change that we need and those economies of scale we do need longer term time horizons which is why trying to get the money committed from 25 to 2030 would really help with the sector in terms of building up our own supply chains our own skills base and also thinking in a really kind of phased approach about how we're going to retrofit our homes it does however take us beyond probably the next general election which is why you know, but we're going to be here beyond the next general election and the one after that and the one after that. And so actually it's trying it is trying to get that that longer term thinking. Yeah, you've clearly seen my pension statement. Come out. I think it's another four elections after that as well. So, Steve, if Kate gets this commitment to longer term funding, what still remains as the biggest challenges from your perspective? Thanks, Nick. And yeah, just to echo Kate's opening remarks, thanks for inviting me on to talk about this really important subject. I think when it comes to the main challenges around retrofitting, I think it depends on when you ask this question. I don't get me wrong, I understand you're asking me the question now, but had you rewound a couple of years, my answer would have been very different. So, you know, I would have previously said that data is a massive challenge to making sure that you take that first step on the on the retrofitting ladder, that it's a correct one. And strategy as well, because rewind a few years, organisations didn't really have on mass a, a coherent plan for how you would go about retrofit. But I think time and, and probably things like social housing decarbonisation fund have changed that because whilst it's you no know, government funding government policy and so on and so forth it's also almost beheaded a bit of a you know a blueprint for how organisations should start to tackle retrofit so it's been really welcome in that respect if you're asking me now as you are then i would say that cost pressures are a, are a big one just going into a little bit more detail what i mean by that you know inflation's been a placed a huge amount of pressure on on our retrofit plans and every other housing association for that matter you know if we go back a year or so ago, pound does not stretch quite as far as it did then in terms of work around things such as SOS heat pumps, external wall insulation, all of the inflation in, in those type of areas have been absolutely massive. And, you know, relatively limited number of contractors who specialise in this type of work as well. So access to labour and contractors is another huge challenge. And finally, I would say, not necessarily in the, the challenging category, but from a customer perspective, I don't think we, you know, we shouldn't be naive enough to think that every single one of our customers sees carbon reduction and reduction in carbon emissions as, as a number one priority. Actually, in a lot of cases, our our customers' issues and things at the top of their agenda are far more pronounced and far more worrying to them than carbon emissions. So a lot of it's about the messaging as well. Yeah, and that's that's a perfect segue, Steve, to my next theme, really, which is around customer engagement. Because I think certainly one of my light bulb moments was back in September 2021, I think it was, when the Social Housing Tenants Climate Jury Report was was published. And I think what that really made me realise was that retrofitting in people's homes was going to be a really hard sell. Because unlike 
yeah, all the home improvements that we make in terms of a new kitchen, new bathroom, those sorts of things, the benefits to, to some of this retrofit work aren't immediately apparent. And, and that really, really started to sort of make me think, blimey, this is going to be really tricky. And so I suppose, really, Steve, just coming back to you first, any thoughts or any tips and tricks in terms of how we engage with customers and, and perhaps clearly communicate some of the benefits to them of having some of these retrofit works done in their home, some of which can be quite disruptive. So any thoughts, any tips, any tricks on that, Steve? We're really fortunate at Yorkshire Housing. We've got some really engaged, involved residents about this subject. We actually had a, a couple of residents who were involved in the tenant climate jury as well. So if we take one, for example, Steve McKenzie is fairly well known in the sector now. <laughs> actually, there's somebody who speaks at more, who's spoken at more conferences than I have, actually, I think. <laughs> You're um, probably not lying there, Steve. <laughs> he, he was speaking at an event last week, you know, and that messaging that Steve believes should go to customers, you know, give you a clue, a little insight into some stuff he was saying, to getting your tenants involved, talk to them, listen, be patient, don't despair. Be open, honest, transparent, and answer questions. And if you don't know, don't patronise them. You know, this is really simple stuff, you know, just yeah. on, on, on a basic level we need to remind ourselves of. So following Steve's advice there, you know, we're going to be working really closely with him and our other involved residents about how we start to get this message out to customers. But it, whenever I ask this question, it reminds me of this old two or three years ago now. It was a, a sustainability type event. And I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Tony Stacey who, who stood up and said, you know, we're, if we're all really, really keen about retrofit and, and, and get into net zero and so on we need to remember that probably 10 years ago Tony Stacey and his organization went out to their residents and gave them the offer of solar pv to be installed photovoltaic panels on the roof that would significantly reduce your energy usage it'd be non-intrusive work and actually 50 percent of the residents said no yeah. and we're talking about this as an instance where we're going to go potentially into customer zones we're going to take out the gas boiler that's how they've known how to heat their home for years and years and years. Replace it with something which is going to be a little bit alien to them, like an air source heat bomb, for example, and it potentially might not even save them any money, and it's going to be quite intrusive to start with. That's where we've got some really pronounced challenges about how we try and get customers on board with this. And a lot of it's about the messaging and working with customers and being honest and so on and so forth, but also about incentivizing some of the benefits as well. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Steve. So some really good sort of tips and tricks. And yeah, quite a, the scale of the task really sort of summarised in that 50% refusal rate for, for solar PV. So it's okay. I, I mentioned in my intro that you've been up and down the country visiting members and speaking to, you know, lots of customers. And just anything you've seen any or any any sort of thinking that the Fed's done around this in terms of how we actually sell the benefits? Yeah, so I think residents are our biggest ambassadors and are actually the way of building up confidence for other residents. And when I've been out and about and I've met people who've kind of experienced retrofit programmes, the things they've said to me is, they don't know what net zero means, they don't calculate carbon, and they were really worried about how disruptive it was going to be. And they were really worried that they weren't going to be able to use the new technology because it would be too kind of alien to them. But actually... When they've been through the process, what's made a difference is being really well supported. So having like early engagement, explaining what's going to happen, but also having a really engaged contractor team that works with them. And then I think it's also having resident support once you've had your retrofit done. So it's not just, you know, your house has had insulation and here's your heat pump and here's your new tech to control your heating. It's coming in and working with them, coming back and checking, you know, making sure that you've got the right skills to provide the maintenance to the new tech that's gone in as well, all of those things. 
It certainly isn't selling the benefits of net zero. It's talking about actually your home's going to feel more comfortable. Home's going to look nicer because it's going to have had investment in the windows, in the doors. You know, if your loft is full of old junk, but maybe it's not junk, maybe it's old memories, you know, we'll help you with that. We can move it out. We can do the work. We can put it back in. Like this, you know, this is going to be disruptive, but we will support you to doing that. And that this is going to make your home more affordable in the longer term. And I think once you've done that and kind of people feel it's okay, they're your best ambassadors. I've been to retrofit schemes where the plan has been to do every home in a street. And you've had one or two people who've just said, I can't handle that level of intrusion or, you know, or have refused for other reasons. And then as the work has started across the street, they've actually started talking to their neighbours. It's not so bad. This cannot, you know, it's not always an easy solution if you've commissioned the contractor and you've got works underway. But actually then trying to be flexible enough to bring those people in to having their home included as well. Because I've definitely kind of come across that a bit. And I think it it really is just speaking in a much more human language about these things. Yes, of course, we need to be able to have the data and the metrics and to, you know, to be assessed and to know exactly what the energy saving is and how you're improving the thermal efficiency and all of that stuff. We need to know about SAP ratings. The resident doesn't, unless they want to, then that's why they can share that too. But most people just want to know what's going to happen, how is it going to take, and is it going to cost me more on the other side? And I do think at a time where people are really feeling the pressure cost of living, there is a real fear actually with a you know, traditional gas boiler, you can turn it off. You can turn your heating off. And a lot of people have been, unfortunately, because they're so worried about a cost. I think when you've got a heat pump and it's on all of the time, that as well feels a bit scary that you've got less control. So again, really having good understanding, empathy of where people are and then supporting them through the change. That's a really good point that Kate just made there, particularly around the aftercare as well. You know, if we take an SOC pump as an example, what we've been guilty of as a I'll say as a sector is, is installing technologies such like this and, leave, and leaving people to it. And as Kate mentions there about, you know, the idea for an SOC pump is it runs continually. But what we found is that in a number of instances is people have gone to turn them off and then realise actually when they turn it back on and so on and so forth, the heating bills absolutely skyrocket, the system's not working as efficiently as it should be and so on and so forth. So that aftercare is really important, but also just a quick word for for smart tech as well. So what we've learned from in over our, our retrofit activity we've been doing is, you know that there's a concern from a resident perspective around privacy and the installation of sensors in the home and so on and so forth. But from a, from a retrofit perspective, actually if we can get the approval to, you know, an agreement with residents to install that smart tech before we undertake the work, then we can genuinely illustrate the whole life journey of how your home was performing prior to the work, how it's performing during, and then afterwards to really illustrate the benefits of why it was worthwhile doing this type of stuff. So, and, and, and in turn, building some of that trust around smart tech, which is going to be integral to how we move forward with this in, in the sector. That trust point's a really important one. Because residents generally do trust their landlord to fix stuff, or if they've got a problem, you know, with their finances, actually speaking to the income support team, you know, there is a trusted relationship between resident and landlords. And I think one of the things that we, as we're rolling out these retrofit programs, is trying to work out making sure that all of the people that the resident might come into contact with have a positive view about retrofit, or at least know where to signpost. So again, I've spoken to residents who've had people come in and fix something and they've said, oh, I've had this leaflet through that says, oh, I can have you know, installation installed. 
And the person who's come in to fix the boiler has been like, oh, no, don't bother with that newfangled stuff. It doesn't work. And it's instantly informed their opinion to say, oh, I don't want to do it then. I don't like change because a contractor's come in who doesn't like change or somebody else you know, that they've, they've interacted with. So again, there's sort of a cultural piece of really understanding that change is difficult, but this is a really positive thing and trying to get that narrative, that language, that kind of cultural positivity piece across the organisation, not just with the people who are going to do the, the work on the day. Some absolutely cracking points there. And I think almost you, I almost want to sort of summarise that and condense it into a one-page summary because I think there are some absolutely tip-top takeaways there. But I think the key one for me was around language. The words we use, yeah, yeah I think the points you both made there are just really powerful in terms of how important it is to get that right. And we talked about, you know, the impact on customers. And, and Kay, I know you mentioned it earlier about the positive impact the retrofitting can have on fuel poverty and, and energy bills for, for customers. Kate, just what you've seen, has it really reduced bills for customers? Has it really helped? And and if so, are there particular circumstances where that applies? For example, if people are, are off-grid and have got oil-fired systems, or is it is it more general than that? So there are huge benefits to retrofitting homes. Some of them are around fuel bill savings, but it is broader than that. I think we have to, the environment that you're living in, when you don't have damp and mould, where you don't have drafty rooms, where it, this really improves your health and your yeah. well-being, how you feel about your community. There's also the added benefits of the job creation, which can be local. You know, we need to retrofit every part of the country. So lots of opportunities there, as well as the environmental ones, which of course are, are hugely important. I think in terms of thinking about who lives in social housing, it tends to be people who have the lowest incomes. That is what social housing is for. Social housing is for, for people who are not met by the market. So by definition, it tends to be people on lower incomes. And if you're on a lower income and then you're in a really inefficient house, it's almost a double whammy of, of cost implications. So if you're on a lower income, your energy bill is also going to be a higher proportion of your income overall, relatively. And then if you're in an energy efficient house, that that's, is the double whammy. So I think it's, it's about really targeting actually where the support is needed most. And there are absolutely benefits. I think in terms of the financial benefits, because we've been through the most extraordinary year of cost inflation on energy bills, it is slightly harder to quantify this is going to save you X amount in the next 12 months because of what's happened with inflation on energy bills. But it definitely would save you comparatively, for example, if you were on a prepayment meter, like there is, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. But I think the comparisons were probably a bit simpler to do prior to the last sort of 12 months of a very high inflation. And I'm sure you are now on Steve's Christmas card list because you've given him potentially a get out of jail free card on, on the question around measurement. But I'm going to push him anyway for it, Kate. So, so Steve, how, how do we measure some of these benefits? You know, where there's a huge amount of investment that's going in. So any thoughts on, on what you've been doing in terms of the measures that have worked and perhaps some to avoid? We undertook a, a scheme of, of retrofit in the area of the country called Craven, 2021 into 2022. And there were two outcomes expected from that particular scheme. One was that we reduced carbon emissions by a certain percentage, and one was that we reduced fuel poverty. And it was it was a fairly extensive scheme. You know, there was SRC pumps being installed. I think there was an element of external wall insulation, some solar PV. Should absolutely have reduced fuel poverty. But we were undertaking that work, as Kate just mentioned, at a time when 
utility bills were absolutely skyrocketing. So whilst we did significantly reduce carbon emissions, we couldn't confidently at the end of that say that we'd significantly reduce fuel poverty. But what we could say, and this is where we have to be really careful in some of our terminology and messaging around this, is that we can't be certain that we'll reduce people's bills because it's something that is completely and utterly out of the sector's control currently. But what we can be certain of is that we can reduce usage And that's what we're really clear about at the minute, that this is about reducing consumption as well as carbon emissions. And actually, some of the measures as well we need to be careful of, because there is, if at this point in time you go for an an all-out attempt to to reduce carbon emissions, if you get that wrong, in in some cases, you actually can increase fuel poverty from a customer's perspective. You actually increase their bills by purely looking at carbon emissions and not actually looking at the energy efficiency of the property in terms of pounds and pence and, and yeah, the measures that you're applying. So we're treading very, very carefully at the minute, taking that fabric first approach that's been set out by the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund to make sure that we're balancing that reduction in carbon emissions, which is massively important, but also at the energy efficiency and the impact on fuel poverty. Yeah, to and again, some great, great answers. And you didn't have to use a get out of jail card. So that's that's even better, Steve. So thank you for that. Both of you have, in, have touched upon a, a really interesting point around helping people to adapt to living in a low carbon home. And this just isn't people in social housing. You know, this is every single one of us, because I think, Steve, you mentioned the fact that, you know, we, we're all used to, to sort of a gas boiler and instant heat and, you know, that whole hardwired thing of turn everything off when you're not using it type mentality. And I suppose this is a very different shift. It's probably a bit like the transition from driving a petrol or diesel car to driving an EV. It's still the same overall, but actually the way that you use it is is very different. So again, any any thoughts on how we can help our customers and ourselves to to make that transition, to adapt to living in a in a low carbon home? Because I was really struck by a conversation I had with a very senior person in a very, very forward-thinking building company who admitted to me that they had turned their their air source heat pump off because they really couldn't face leaving it on overnight and then got a large fuel bill. So this is everybody. This is about changing all of our behaviours. So I'll come back to you first, Steve, just on this. Just any thoughts on you know, how we can help us all to adapt? I think it's interesting you use the analogy about the transition from you know a petrol or diesel powered vehicle to an electric one. I've just bought an electric vehicle, actually, Nick. You'll be pleased to know. I thought the job title lended itself to the fact that I needed to have an electric vehicle. But the, the important thing to, to say about that is that... that's a that's a great business case for for, for when you're at home I'm making that case. I'm sure. Steve. But I, I must admit, it's it's not been a particularly difficult transition, apart from the install of you know the charging kits and, and and so on and so forth. Actually, I think the messaging from the the auto industry sector about that transition to electric vehicles is pretty good. I think actually, you know, and you. You know, you love to use the example of from a, from a Tesla perspective, their messaging around how you purchase the vehicle, how it runs, all that it's absolutely spot on. It completely changes the the landscape in terms of that 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 transition. Let's talk about the domestic dwellings, though. Why we do absolutely need to get the messaging right, and I think there's a lot of fears around things such as air source heat pumps that you know they don't work in the cold, that you don't want to leave them on because they're using the, the fuel bills will go through the roof, and it's just dispelling a lot of these myths actually because you know the take take some northern european countries where actually they've got the highest uptake of src pumps are also some of the coldest nations in europe as well you yeah. know so it's it this this technology does work it is proven and actually it's getting better as time goes on this these systems are more and more efficient so it's, it's just about again really clear messaging and dispelling some of these myths actually because the future this low carbon future that we talk about the solutions that are in place are likely to be light years ahead of where we are now okay anything you want to add to what steve's brought in there we could do with some more positive narrative about actually 
the why and then the how. Unfortunately, from, from government, we, we've got some really great support from Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund. Just this week, we've heard a lot about the government's sort of net zero plans, but we haven't had a really positive narrative of this can make your home more comfortable. This is going to help shield you from really high fuel bills in the future. This is going to make us as a country much more energy secure, so less vulnerable to the things that are happening as a result of the war in Ukraine. We don't have that kind of national narrative of yeah. actually the really positive thing. Also just around here, there's a huge potential for job creation, for skills, for manufacturing locally, you know, all of this stuff that actually is within our gift. We don't have a really positive narrative, or we haven't had. And I think in some ways, that's made residents more fearful. So we hear about the bad stuff when it goes wrong rather than the opportunities. So there is probably a national government role there and cross government as well. This isn't just one department, although we do have a department for energy security and that's area, but it should be right across the piece. And then there is that kind of that role for us in the sector, for sector leaders. And then I think it's really about hearing resident stories and actually then doing that kind of that post-occupancy, the post-installation support and coming back and coming back and coming back, you know, not just once or twice, but making sure that this really is affordable, is working, that the support's in place. And that's all in our gift and we can do that. I'm not pretending that things won't go wrong, things do go wrong. And again, it's about how we respond to that and support residents in those situations. The reason we have the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund is government do see the residents of social housing being the place where we start to build up the consumer confidence because we don't have the equivalent schemes in the private rented sector or for owner occupiers in the same scale that we've got with the social housing decarbonisation fund. So again, that's a big opportunity for, for us to try and build up that confidence. I think you said it very early on in this session that you know this is a this is a 20 to 30 year programme. So, you know, if for those people who are starting out in their, their housing careers, you know, get on to retrofit because you're going to have a job for life. It's going to be it's going to be great. First of all, start with you, Steve, on supply chain. I want to come back to UK on skills. But first of all, Steve, you know, there's a huge amount of investment that's needed. But at the moment, the supply chain probably isn't there at the scale that's needed. And then if you get the scale, we know the price comes down. So what's your view of the the supply chain and and where do you think that's going to go in terms of what it will look like i think the supply chain at present is rather limited shall we say uh, the pool with which we all have access to to be able to get, the, get this type of work undertaken is, is considerably smaller than it needs to be i think the way that the, the direction of travel that this is going in is what organizations are going to have to start taking the bull by the horns and start looking at this themselves and actually starting to recognizing that this is a long-term investment that this is a 10 20 you know 30 year program and start to grow those green skills you know with, with, within their own organization that's a, a hugely important thing for for us and obviously that a lot of that depends on your delivery model within your own organization as to whether you do have an in-house workforce but certainly from our perspective growing those green skills around a lot of this work is is absolutely key has been able to deliver the type of stuff at scale you know we've, we've got additional money set aside in our business plan in the run-up to 2030 to to improve the energy efficiency of, of our homes but we're not looking just to the social housing decarbonization fund to be able to do that you know there's a whole there's a whole suite of programs we're going to have to take that is, is yorkshire housing led rather than being reliant on on government subsidy and we'd like to deliver that with our own in-house green skills to be able to do it so now's the time for us to start looking at doing that and growing that up the cost of the next few years 
Yeah. And and what would be your message to the supply chain, Steve, or some perhaps a business that was thinking of scaling up from its current activity levels or indeed perhaps a boiler manufacturer that's sort of thinking, you know what, I need to probably switch horses here and maybe air source or ground source heat pumps is looking like the future. What, what would be your, your quick message to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that this is the future and this is the direction of travel that this is, that this is moving in. But, you know, the, you take the gas industry, for example, it's a really, really established industry. But at some point, you need to recognise the fact that we're, we're going down a route that probably isn't looking for a long-term investment in, in gas. So, yeah, that pivot into, into what the future looks like. We always look, well, certainly I do, always look back at the Decent Homes programme has been absolutely massive for the sector in terms of the scale of the challenge. But this that we're talking about here, retrofit, it dwarfs that, it, you know, it pales, the decent home program pales in comparison to the scale of the challenge that we've got here. So in terms of taking a long-term yeah. view or playing the long, the, looking towards the long game on this, this is a pretty sound investment from that perspective, I think. That's great advice. And Kate, coming to you, because Steve's returned the favour on giving you a get out of jail card, not that I'm sure that you'll need it on, on the skills, but it's fine even if the sector responds positively to Steve's message around the need to scale up and the need to invest and have a much more diverse supply chain. But we still haven't got the skills then to actually fit and maintain some of the low carbon and, and green kit. So in terms of those green skills, how do we create the, the workforce of the, of the future? As we know, the, you know, these skills are going to be what we need for the next 20, 30 years. Just as Steve said, you know, what can we do with our existing workforce in terms of upskilling? But also, how do we make our sector a place where you know there is an opportunity of working for the next, not one decade, but multiple decades? Yeah. And doing something that's really values-led. Social housing is really values-led. It's about providing good quality homes and services for people on lower incomes. And that means making sure their homes are sustainable and fit for the future. And I think the generation that's coming through is incredibly climate minded. You know, this is if we look at kind of voting demographics, climate change is really, really high up there with younger people. And again, making this a place where you can make a really tangible, meaningful difference through your career for coming to work in social housing on on retrofit and on sustainable new builds. And I think that's something at the Fed that we should be looking at doing in terms of how we work with government. But there is also something around government's length of funding and direction of travel to build up that confidence as well. Because I think we have had a number of programmes, whether it's been things like feed and tariffs on solar at photovoltaics, which have been really stop start. So you might go in and then the programme ends. And so that really, really disrupts confidence. So what we do need is a long-term strategy and long-term funding to go with that and to build up that confidence. And that will enable us also then to build up our own skills wow. base and supply chain. That's great. And I think on the green skills, I think there's some really good examples, particularly from some of our devolved regions where green skills has been identified as a priority. And that's then starting to give some of the training providers the confidence to put on the courses that, you know, ourselves and many others are then starting to say, well, actually, yes, we have the people who we need to, to be putting through that training so that they can be our future green workforce. OK, we have uh, reached that point. But before I let you escape, uh, there is always the quickfire round. So this is where you have only one sentence to answer the question. And the question this time is, would you rather travel back to the past or would you rather travel to the future? I want to go with you first, Kate, on this one. I would rather travel to the future because 
But I'm hoping at some point in the future I'll be able to teleport because I spend far too much of my time waiting <laughs> on train platforms for trains that get cancelled at the last minute. And so it would be an amazing thing to be able to just click my fingers and, and be in Scarborough or any other part of the country. Okay, you you could be the next Doctor Who then, Kate, if you've, if you've got that, that skill. How about you, Steve? There's too many variables around this question. But do I have to stay? Would I go to the past or the future? Do I stay there? Or am I just, you know, like, just visiting? Steve, you're overthinking this one. Come on. What, what does your gut tell you? I, I know that with you, that there's only one correct answer to this, which is the future. <laughs> <laughs> but if I was having to stay there, I'd go back to the past, just because, you know... I. I love doing what I do, so I'd like to go back and do it all again. So. Oh, great answer. Great answer. So that's it. It's time to close the door on this episode of the podcast. So I want to say a massive thank you to, to both Kate and Steve for, for their insight. Huge number of takeaways from today's session. But also a huge thank you to, to you, the listeners, for tuning into this episode. Please remember all our previous episodes from both season one and season two are available via your usual podcast providers. Our next episode is the last in season two. I know, how did that happen? The last in our eight part series is all about customer service. So based on what Kate has said, Transpennine Express, you better beware as you may be getting a mention or two from me. So please remember to hit subscribe to ensure that you don't miss a thing. But for now, thanks once again for listening.